ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Good morning and welcome to AM. It's Friday the 5th of January. I'm Kim Landers coming to you from Gadigal land in Sydney. The Islamic State terrorist group has claimed responsibility for two explosions in Iran that killed nearly 100 people, the worst terrorist attacks in the country for decades. The blast targeted a commemoration that was being held for an Iranian general killed by the US four years ago. Meanwhile, thousands of people have attended the funeral of a senior Hamas official killed earlier this week in a suspected Israeli drone strike in Lebanon. It's all reinforcing concerns that the Israel-Hamas war, which is nearing the three-month mark, is spreading beyond Gaza. Middle East correspondent Alison Horn is in Jerusalem. Alison, why would the Islamic State terrorist group have been behind these blasts in Iran? Well, Kim, Islamic State hasn't really been the force it once was here in the Middle East, but that doesn't mean that it's gone away. It still exists in parts of the Middle East, like North Syria, um, Iran, for example. And I think they would probably be looking at what's happening in the rest of the Middle East at the moment, in Gaza, in Lebanon, attacks by Houthis in the Red Sea, for example. And Islamic State would be looking at that and seeing, you know, this chaos across the region and an opportunity to take advantage of what's happening and to hit an enemy because Islamic State, which is a Sunni Islamist group, has long been opposed to Iran, which has a Shiite Islamic government. So I think what we're probably going to see as this war in Gaza continues and there's a destabilisation around the region, groups like Islamic State could look for further opportunities to hit enemies or to take hold in areas that don't have strong governance. And Alison, when you talk about unrest in the region, Hezbollah has promised retaliation after the assassination of the Hamas deputy leader in Lebanon. Has Hezbollah followed through yet? What we've seen so far is a continuation, really, Kim, of what we have been seeing for almost the last three months. And it's this cross-border attacks and cross-border skirmishes between Israel and Lebanon on the Israel-Lebanon border. We've been seeing multiple uh, missiles being fired out of Lebanon today by Israel and Israel hitting back. So it doesn't really seem like a significant escalation, particularly given that Hezbollah's leader has Nasrallah promised there would be fierce retaliation after this airstrike on the Hamas deputy leader Salah al-Aruri. It could mean that Hezbollah is simply biding its time but I think it's important to note that Lebanon is going through such a dire economic crisis at the moment. It's on the abyss, its uh, pound has tanked and so many people there are in such desperation and poverty that uh, you you know, drawing Israel into a war with Lebanon would perhaps not be in the best interests of Hezbollah or the Lebanese people at the moment. So uh, while people here in Jerusalem, in Israel and also in Lebanon are waiting to see whether or not Hezbollah makes good on its threats, I think that some people are erring on the side that Hezbollah might not retaliate as strong as it has threatened to. Alison Horn. Exhausted residents in tornado-ravaged parts of southeast Queensland are enjoying some relief, with power returned to many homes and more roads open. However, the recovery is far from over, with residents navigating insurance claims as they face huge clean-up bills. Stephanie Smale reports. 
Now the weather has improved, the clean-up is happening faster here at the scenic rim. After more than a week without power for so many, Energex crews are out in force. There must be about 100 people along the road here with traffic control and there's a couple of high-clearance army vehicles here too just working to get the big trees out of the way. Things are looking up for Lisa Wellnitz at Tambourine. The tornado and torrential rain made a mess of her property, but she got a happy surprise when the power came back on. We'd forgotten that we'd left the fans on and everything, and we'd, we'd hung these sort of uh, battery-operated lights off the fan to give us lights, and we're all sitting there chatting, and next minute lights are flying, microwaves beeping, and there's lights coming on, and we're like, oh my God, the power is on! On street after street, huge branches are being hauled from front yards for wood chipping. At one Cedar Grove property, a truck is already full and another is arriving to take its place. Although the recovery is picking up pace, the evidence of the tornado's destruction is still clear. Trees were uprooted and branches thrown more than 100 metres into this man's home back at Tambourine. Yeah, total devastation, really. If you have a look at the trees over there, uh, um, they've just shredded that one. As you can see, all the gutters and awnings up here, that was how far they were thrown. And on top of this roof and the back roof over there. The wood chippers are going on Ashley Perring Street at Cedar Grove too. He's still relying on a generator for power, but he's grateful his home is intact. The, our big tank from the back of the pool area has somehow spun around, cleared a fruit tree and ended up on the roof, so it's, we don't understand how it happened. Um, it happened. His manufacturing business is on hold until the power is restored, though, and he says the pause in trade will cost him tens of thousands of dollars. He's expecting clearing the fallen trees and debris from his yard will come with a hefty bill too. This is not covered by insurance. Unless there is debris sitting on your roof, um, or on your sheds, this isn't covered by insurance. So um, to get a chipper in to cover all of this stuff, we're looking at about another $10,000. Energex bosses say they're confident power will be restored to the majority of people still without electricity on the weekend. Stephanie Smale reporting. Trying to find a place to live in regional Australia is difficult, with rents rising and vacancy rates very low. It was tough in small South Australian towns along the River Murray before the floods a little over a year ago, but the disaster has made it even worse, as Angus Randall reports. James Bailey is still living in a caravan a year after floodwaters inundated his home on the banks of the River Murray, 130 kilometres east of Adelaide. I never expected to be 51 and homeless. I feel sorry for the homeless because I'm cashed up but homeless. The tiny town of Walker Flat was evacuated during last year's floods that affected around 3,500 properties from the Victorian border all the way to the Murray Mouth. When James Bailey returned, he was quick to take up a state government offer to demolish his flood-affected home for free. But a year on, he's stuck in red tape, waiting for builders to start on his new home. I should have footings and maybe a frame up by now, but I don't. Two hours upriver, Kirsty Barnett is from community support service AC Care at Berry in the Riverland. Her office is supporting around 25 people who are still struggling financially as a result of the flood. People who are living in 
things like shacks and thing, those sorts of things who cannot at the moment still have them rebuilt or have them repaired because it takes a long time in terms of insurance assessment. It takes a long time to get trades to do that rep- reparation work. Housing was already tough to find in the region and a natural disaster only made things worse. The water drops down and there are many more people being affected in a housing crisis and many people choose to move to a country region, especially in times of crisis, like a housing crisis, under the belief that, you know, access to housing is more accessible, more affordable, and that's not necessarily the case at all. In regional SA, rents surged by more than 6% in the June quarter. It was the highest quarterly growth in the country. And even if you've saved a deposit, it's not much easier to buy. Raf Little is from Elders Real Estate, Riverland. This is the lowest stock levels we've ever seen. What that's telling us is sellers are staying put at the moment because if they need to sell in a strong market, they also need to buy in a strong market. It's a problem echoed across the state. Nick Champion is the South Australian Planning Minister. Well, clearly the system's failed in the regions. We've got a 0% rental vacancy rate. Most of the builders out in the country are have got full order books. The state government is trying one way to ease the housing crunch. It's becoming a landlord. In February, it launched the Office for Regional Housing. One of its first tasks will be to build 35 homes to house government employees living regionally. Five of these will be in the Riverland. Of course, every one of those doctors, nurses or teachers or police that we take out of the private rental market adds to the private rental pool because that home will be available for private rental to town's residents and the like. The government expects to have workers in homes by 2025. Angus Randall reporting. There were 98,000 electric vehicles sold in Australia last year, so these holidays more people than ever are likely to be hitting the roads behind the wheel of an EV. But many will encounter frustrations like public charging facilities that are hard to find or blocked by cars already fully charged. And as reporter Nick Grimm discovered, that's leading to calls for tougher penalties. That car over there, the last car... You can see the green light, blue light it's working, green light it's not working. As he waits at the public charging facilities located in the basement car park of a major retailer, electric vehicle owner Sammy Haddad is fuming. Yeah, as you can see, her car's occupying a parking spot and the charger is connected to her car but it's not charging, it's turned off. He's not annoyed for his own sake. His car is already plugged in and charging. But he's watched several other EV drivers come looking for somewhere to connect and move on elsewhere. You know, just occupying the space makes it a lot harder for everybody else. And it's a common frustration for EV drivers. Nick Reid lives in an apartment and has nowhere to charge his vehicle at home. It's not great. I tried to charge last night, but I couldn't. It was full or couldn't find one that was open. And I was supposed to start work this morning, so I'm late now. So now we're driving into a charging bay and it's not the same as just driving past a petrol station, liking the price and stopping. Nirav Bat is an independent motoring journalist specialising in electric vehicles. As he points out, the growing number of EV drivers on the roads these holidays might encounter their own frustrations trying to top up. Yes, I think that's going to be a problem, especially so in the next one and a half to two years 
as the number of EVs sold increases a lot. This year, sales of EVs are said to be close to 400% higher than in 2022. At the same time, the number of public charging facilities have also been increasing, though at a more modest 70% rate of growth this year. Around the country, there are currently around 2,000 fast and ultra-fast charging points available for the more than 170,000 electric vehicles now on the road. Since this time last year, there's been a lot of more infrastructure put out there, but there's also been a lot more car sales as well. Carly Irving-Dolan is the NRMA's CEO of Energy and Infrastructure. It's a major provider of charging facilities in New South Wales. So, yeah, I do think we need to get better at it, and I think that as more vehicles come on, we're going to have to really manage that. That's leading to calls for a get-tough approach, including penalties for those blocking access to charging facilities, such as so-called idle fees. Basically what it means is once your car's full, you get 10 minutes grace period, and after that you get charged a dollar a minute penalty until you come back. The federal government says it's improving access for Australians to drive cleaner, cheaper to run cars, with 2023 a record year for the rollout of fast and ultra-fast public electric vehicle chargers installed across Australia. Nick Grimm reporting. The race for the White House officially begins in less than a fortnight with the first contest to secure party nominations. But hanging over it all is whether Donald Trump's name will be on the ballot in some states. The Republican frontrunner is already asking the conservative-leaning Supreme Court to overturn a decision which banished him from the Colorado primary, as Nell Whitehead explains. Less than two weeks from the first presidential nomination contest in Iowa and Donald Trump's in campaign mode. Record numbers streaming across our border, costing taxpayers billions and almost as many... The former president released this advert accusing President Joe Biden and his Republican opponent Nikki Haley of threatening national security. Haley's weakness puts us in grave danger. Trump's strength protects us. In a speech on Friday, President Biden is set to accuse Mr Trump of being an existential threat to American democracy. A new TV ad from his campaign shows footage of the January 6th, 2021 Capitol riots and a white supremacist rally in Charlottesville in 2017. There's something dangerous happening in America. There's an extremist movement that does not share the basic beliefs in our democracy. That's as America's Supreme Court is asked to rule on whether Donald Trump is eligible to run. This is incredibly politically significant for the Supreme Court to be making decisions about presidential elections, especially given the current politics of the court and the level of distrust in the court that adds yet another layer of unpredictability and instability to an already fragile democracy. Dr Emma Shortis is a senior researcher in international and security affairs at the Australia Institute. Two states, first Colorado and then Maine, have disqualified Mr Trump from their primary ballots for engaging in insurrection leading up to the January 6th riots. Mr Trump's now appealed both cases asking the US Supreme Court to overturn the Colorado ruling. If the justices agree to take up the decision, it would place an explosive political case before the nation's highest judicial body, whose 6-3 conservative majority includes three of Mr Trump's own appointees. Colorado's ruling relies on the 14th Amendment, which bans insurrectionists from holding office. 
I certainly think there's a strong argument around the the use of the 14th Amendment, which is a post-Civil War amendment designed specifically to prevent insurrectionists from taking office, from taking over a government that they have tried to bring down. But I think it's also important to say that as much as these are legal questions, they are above all political questions. Mm. And that's why you're seeing different decisions being made at, at different state levels. The open question is whether Donald Trump's attempts to secure himself a second term after losing the 2020 election amounted to an act of insurrection. His lawyers argue not. Other states, including California and Arizona, have decided not to remove him from their primary ballots and attempts to do so have been blocked by courts in Michigan and Minnesota. A Supreme Court ruling on his eligibility would be binding nationwide, shaping a wider effort to disqualify Mr Trump from state ballots. Nell Whitehead reporting. The food served at Australia's aged care facilities has long been criticised for being unhealthy and impacting the quality of life for residents. But a national program is hoping to change that by providing new skills and inspiration for those in the kitchen. Isabel Masali prepared this report. When we're plating up texture-modified food, it's important to remember that we're using things that we have already in the kitchen. So we can look at using ring moulds, we can use piping bags, we can use spoons, we can use pallet knives. At this workshop, chefs and cooks are learning how to lift the quality of food served in their aged care homes. One of the keen participants is Wendy Rose. She shows me a dish for residents who have difficulty with solid food. We've got a sweet and sour pork, a beetroot puree, a carrot puree, potato puree. We've used different techniques to plate up. So some of them have used ring moulds to create a round shape. And then there's different piping nozzles to have achieved different shapes. It kind of looks like something you'd get in a restaurant. That's the idea, so that it doesn't look like the boring food that might have been served in the past. The free training hub in Perth is one of more than 100 across the country run by the Maggie Beer Foundation. It received $5 million from the federal government to help chefs and cooks prepare for new aged care quality standards, expected to come into force in 2024. But chef trainer and nutritionist Rachel Knight says it's about more than that. We want our residents to be happy. This is it. I think this is our aim. We want our residents to have the best dining experience. We want to provide optimal nutrition. The sessions cover everything from increasing protein servings for muscle mass to boosting hydration by using fruit and herb infusions to make water more appealing. We have cost restrictions, but, you know, we talk about this in our hubs. How can we cut costs? We talk about utilising seasonal produce. And then we discuss, like, how to create a menu that, you know, has minimal waste and therefore reduces our costs. University of Melbourne's Dr Sandra Giuliano researches food in aged care and gave evidence at the Royal Commission a few years ago and is involved in this project. She says it's too early to know how effective the program will be but it's hopeful the training will make a difference. Especially staff that may have come in and not necessarily worked in the aged care setting. So it's about how can we upskill them because the needs of older adults are different to the general healthy older adult in the community. We know they eat small quantities. We know many are on texture modified. So they really need those skills to be able to ensure that the food's 
not only good for them, but looks good and tastes good as well. And if you're caring for an older Australian yourself, she stresses it's important to find out what types of food they enjoy. Isabel Masali reporting. And that is AM for today. Thanks for your company. I'm Kim Landers.